0: Today, from the Global Lane, an historic agreement between Israel, Bahrain and the UAE, but no peace for Muslim converts to Christ facing persecution. It's somebody
1: within the family who is saying, you can't do this.
0: Supreme Court fight, partisan divide, we've been down this road before. America's first four Virginia presidents battled one another.
2: Lots of conflict. It was bitter.
0: Virtual church and Christians take a break. What now? And choosing a new Supreme Court justice, what the fight is really about. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. An historic agreement last week at the White House when the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain signed a peace treaty with Israel. That was only the third time an event like that has happened between Israel and her Arab neighbors in the past 72 years. While peace may be at hand with the Jewish state, Christians in both the UAE and Bahrain, especially those who have converted from Islam, are finding very little peace. In fact, they face persecution. Here to explain is Todd Nettleton. Mr. Nettleton is host of VOM Radio, and he's chief of media relations at The Voice of the Martyrs. Okay, Todd, a historic meeting, uh, an agreement there, good news for Israel. But share the news about what's happening to Christians in the Gulf states. First, the UAE, what's it like to be a Christian there?
1: Well, you're correct, this is good news. And as Christians, you know, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and so we celebrate this agreement. But as you say, Christians in the UAE face persecution, especially those who have converted from Islam. Now, typically in the UAE, it is not the government. It's not necessarily that the police come banging on their door. It's typically members of their own family who are enforcing the honor of the family. They're enforcing the fact that, hey, Our family is Muslim. If you're not a Muslim anymore, you don't belong in our family. And so typically that's the
0: first line of persecution that new believers from an Islamic background would face in the UAE. And what about Bahrain? Are they similar? I know they have a large Shia Muslim population.
1: Bahrain is very similar. It is typically at the family level where persecution starts. Uh, And again, it's a matter of honor. If someone in your family becomes a Christian, they have dishonored the family because uh, the family code is we are a Muslim family. We, We don't have Christians here. And so it's your dad, it's your big brother, it's somebody within the family who is
0: saying, you can't do this.
1: You can't bring shame on us this
0: way. Todd, in both countries, uh, the government doesn't do much to prevent this, though. Uh, are there any encouraging developments for Christians in either of these countries?
1: You know, there are some encouraging developments. And, and as you say, the government in both countries kind of turns the other way. When when a family takes care of what they would call a family problem, uh, the government doesn't enforce the law. They don't worry about those kind of attacks. But there are some encouraging things happening, and particularly in Bahrain, which is available to Saudi citizens to come across and visit freely. Uh, There's no visa requirement. It's easy for them to come to Bahrain. And so it is a place where Saudis can be approached with the gospel, and they can uh, be approached with a New Testament or a Gospel of John or just a gospel message. So there is gospel activity in both of these places, but as we've mentioned, especially for Muslim converts, there's a price to be paid for following Christ.
0: And it's very sensitive work, is it not? Also online there.
1: It, there's a lot on the line. They, they have to be very careful about how they go about ministry. A lot of the ministry that is happening or a lot of the sort of open Christian activity is among immigrants. It's people who are working in the country from different places around the world. And in the eyes of the authorities, it's okay for them to be a Christian. If, say, you're from the Philippines, okay, it's okay for you to be a Christian. But where you start to minister to the local people and start encouraging Muslims to hear about Jesus Christ, there's a lot on the line.
0: Finally, Todd, one of VOM's most successful books, aside from Pastor Wormbrand's Tortured for Christ is jesus freaks and i know you've just updated it now tell us what vom has done it's kind of hard to tinker with success isn't
1: it it is hard to tinker with success jesus freaks by the voice of the martyrs and dc talk is now just over 20 years old Uh, and as you say amazingly successful book that impacted an entire generation of christian young people what we have done is, is updated about 30% of the material, brought some of the great stories from the last 20 years into the text, so that uh, the people who read it maybe as teenagers 20 years ago, now they can give it to their teenagers and inspire the next generation uh, to really live like Jesus freaks, to do whatever Christ asks us to do, regardless
0: of what the cost is required. Well, it's a great book. I'd recommend it to anyone. So how can they get a copy? The book releases the last week in October, and it will be available wherever books are sold. And and Todd, how about BOM Radio? How can we hear that?
1: Thank you for mentioning. VOM Radio is heard on about a thousand radio stations across the country. It is also available as a podcast. And every week we talk to someone, either a persecuted Christian or someone who's involved in ministry in a hostile and restricted nation. And we hear their stories, we hear what's going on in these countries, and we always finish up with okay, how can we pray? So we want to equip listeners. to be prayer warriors on behalf of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. And uh, you can find us at vomradio.net. There's also a place there where you can find a local radio station near you or links to subscribe to the podcast. And I'm, I've got to mention, an NRB winner last
0: year, correct?
1: We did. Uh, we were named uh, Radio Program of the Year. Actually, our, our first year broadcasting, which... Uh, it's kind of an amazing sign of God's favor, I think. It's certainly not a sign of my expertise, uh, but really the, the ability to tell the stories of persecuted Christians, uh, there just isn't that much like it on the radio. In fact, I would suggest there's nothing else like it on the radio. And as we share the stories of persecuted Christians, you know, the writer of Hebrews says, of whom the world was not worthy, literally, people who are too good for this world As we tell their stories and as we tell them well, I think listeners are drawn into that and their own
0: faith is challenged and encouraged. Okay, Todd Nettleton, keep up the good work. From The Voice of the Martyrs, thanks so much for sharing your time and insights today, Todd.
1: Thanks for having me, Gary. It's always fun to talk to you.
0: A major political battle is now underway over the Supreme Court seat vacated by the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But we've been down this path before, and there is precedent. After President John Adams lost his re-election in December 1800, and before leaving office as a lame duck, he nominated his Secretary of State, John Marshall, to be Chief Justice of the Court. After a delay, Marshall was finally confirmed and sworn into office in February 1801. One month later, he swore in America's third president, Thomas Jefferson. This is detailed in the new book, Virginia Dynasty, Four Presidents and the Creation of the American Nation. Joining us is the book's author, former Second Lady Lynn Cheney. Mrs. Cheney, it's a pleasure to have you with us. I read your book. I must say, as a student of American history, it's the first time the stories of these four Virginian presidents are told and their relationship detailed together in one book. Let's begin with the court. You mentioned Jefferson's dislike for fellow Virginian John Marshall, saying some differences were hard, if not impossible, to reconcile. That sounds a bit like the battle we're now in over a new Supreme Court justice. Now, you're a historian. This is nothing new, right?
2: You mean the kind of conflict that we're experiencing now? And no, um, there were lots of fights between these four men and these four men and others. Uh, Lots of conflict. I... Wonder, it was bitter, and it was reflected in the newspapers, which were the media of the day. Jefferson once said he was so angry with newspapers. He said, you know, maybe I could get along with them if they would just create a separate section for lies. He was so angry. Uh, but in any case, angry as he was and vicious as the press was, you didn't have social media giving it a big megaphone. It, uh, spread it everywhere all the time. So yes, it was the same, but I think the effect of uh, of having uh, social media has made it different.
0: And long before President Trump, Thomas Jefferson complained about the, quote, engulfing power of the courts. Tell us about that. What was Jefferson's concern?
2: Well, he thought that the courts were uh, overreaching. Does that sound a little familiar? Um, he uh wasn't upset with uh, Marbury versus Madison in the beginning, but he quickly realized that uh, that ruling had expanded the power of the court and he believed had uh, impinged on the other branches of government. So it was, it was a matter of power. And uh, I think it uh, wasn't uncommon then, and it isn't uncommon now for the various branches of government to try to uh, increase their sway to become more powerful
0: this summer statues of george washington and thomas jefferson were torn down in portland slave owner was painted across the toppled jefferson statue what don't young people and other americans know about thomas jefferson and slavery i'm thinking about the new states also the northwest territory
2: well particularly in his early years when it seemed as though. Um, slavery uh, was vulnerable and that it had, uh, it had a future where it would just be gone. Um, Jefferson was one of the enthusiasts. He actually introduced a bill that um, would have uh, helped free Virginia slaves. And you're right, in the Northwest Territory, he set the precedent for uh, not having uh, slavery there. One of the things I think, uh, I really wanted to stress this in the book, that Yes, these were uh, flawed people, as we are, all are, and it's slavery, they believed it was an immoral institution, which of course it is. And they understood that it was in contradiction to the ideas and and the ideals they set forth, freedom, justice, uh, liberty, equality. It was in complete contradiction to those things but they tried to embed the ideas in our basic documents, for example, in the Declaration of Independence and and not take any of those uh, ideals and ideas, the force of them away uh, in the constitution. And there were people in the years following, including Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass who believed they had succeeded. So now I think we just have an oversimplistic idea of uh, human beings and, and of the founders and then it's very damaging this country was founded on high ideals but i keep reading um in uh texts that are intended for schools for example that our founding ideals were alive when they were created and, and that's just so unsettling partly because we're a country based on ideals and the ones upon which we created liberty, equality, justice, and so on, those ideals are, they're immortal. Those ideas tr- are transcendent. And the notion that we're now going to say, well, um, they were lies from the beginning, it's just not understanding what the foundation, what the founding uh, was like.
0: Jefferson and Madison were good friends, and you talked about it in the nation's early years. They wanted intellectual freedom, and that was, quote, woven like a ribbon through much of their work. How important was that to them? How important is that to America today in a time of social media censorship and politically correct speech?
2: The idea of freedom of uh, expression, intellectual freedom, was perhaps the one uh, to which they were most dedicated Madison in particular. As I mentioned before, Jefferson got so tired of bad press toward the end of his life that he began flailing out at uh, at newspapers. But it was there in the beginning, um, Madison was furious that uh, freedom of religion uh, was halted by uh, not allowing Quakers, not allowing Baptists in particular, to express their views and throwing them in jail in Virginia uh, when they did. Some people say
0: Jefferson was an atheist or agnostic at best. What have you discovered about the Christian faith of these four Virginian presidents?
2: Well, you're right. Jefferson, uh, Jefferson had trouble with uh, miracles. And so he built himself a Bible, uh, cut and pasted a Bible, in which the emphasis was on Christ's moral teachings. You know, that seems admirable in a way I you know I wished he had uh, believed in virgin birth but he didn't he did however adopt the uh, or, or tried to follow or admired at least uh the, the teachings of uh of Christ Madison always held church services uh Washington went to church services though he didn't take communion so that there was a, a an honoring of of religion um and, and to know how Madison felt is is very difficult. Someone once said they'd had a conversation with him and he sounded like a Unitarian. But, you know, that's just sort of uh, rumor in second hand.
0: Former Second Lady Lynn Cheney, author of the just released book, Virginia Dynasty, Four Presidents and the Creation of the American Nation. It's so timely and needed right now to recall the struggles and lessons of four of America's first five presidents. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today.
2: Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: If you're like me during the past six months, you've probably attended church services online. You may have participated in video streaming of your Bible study or life group. New challenges are facing the church in the COVID-19 era, and what about afterwards? A Barna Group study finds that one in three practicing Christians are taking a break from church. Will that trend continue next year? Well, here to set us straight and how to handle all of this is Kristen Tete, product manager for Faith Life. So what should be done to keep churches vibrant?
3: Well, there are a lot of things, Gary, that can be done to keep churches vibrant. First and foremost, we have to remember that we are the church. Church is not just a building. And so what you've done offline you can do online. You can create vibrant, invitational online community. You need to have a space for that community. And so, what we recommend is creating a faith life church group so that you can invite your people into community. Then you want to make sure that you can actually disciple your people online. And so, uh, we have some interesting stats coming out. You quoted a few of those stats that we're really looking at and studying at Faith Life, but. What I think is really fascinating is another Barna Stat, which says that 11% of practicing Christians are searching for spiritual topics online. Don't leave discipleship to a search engine. Make sure that you as the church are positioned to lead people through their spiritual questions. You got to have that place online to lead them through those questions.
0: Yes, I'm thinking maybe Gen Xers are probably more in tune with that. So I'm sure some churches just aren't equipped though to do digital streaming. They don't have, they think they need all these expensive cameras and lighting. So what can they do?
3: Oh, your church can absolutely live stream. We've set up all of the tools that you need to live stream. Live stream is very accessible. Uh, Our company Faithlife is happy to teach you how to live stream. We've been doing free uh, training webinars all throughout COVID-19. In fact, our entire team shifted back in March. We all went home, just like everybody else, and started working from home and started doing webinars around the clock, just to teach you how to use technology.
0: Another factor is, for many churches, people just aren't in the pews, or not giving, or giving is reduced because of COVID nineteen. How do they survive that? What is Faith Life advising?
3: Well, we we recommend that you uh, that you understand the needs of your communities. Churches have been for a very long time understanding the needs of communities through prayer requests so we encourage you to uh, get your people to post their prayer requests online in your community group in your faith life group uh, and Also, of course, through text messaging, I mean, stay connected with your community uh, in all of the ways that you normally would, um, but add that added layer of asking them to post prayer requests so that you can understand the need. But then you need to actually respond to that so you can set up a time-limited fund to meet needs. Uh, A lot of churches right now we're seeing set up COVID-19 relief funds. You can do that through Faith Life Giving, but your people need a place online in order to respond. So make sure that you set the stage and then invite them to it.
0: Now, now how about digital church uh, and the effect on salvations, the number of people actually making commitments to Christ, also their discipleship? Uh, That's a challenge, I guess, digitally.
2: Well,
3: digital discipleship is not a lot different from physical discipleship. Uh, we are the church. And so walking people through this season, I mean, I, I will say that my relationship with the Lord is, uh, is very strong when I walk through challenges. And I think we can all agree, Gary, this is a very challenging season, but it's also a remarkable moment to see what God is doing. And so, digital has actually given us the opportunity to connect with even more people and reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What better tool do we have than the internet?
0: And some people may find it easier to actually share their faith uh, online than they would in person. Okay, Kristen Tete of Faith Life, thanks for setting us straight today.
3: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: So President Trump and the Republicans are moving forward with a Supreme Court replacement for the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Are you ready for a rough ride? It may be one of the biggest political fights the country has ever experienced. But to me, it's really a spiritual battle. You see, life is at the heart of this battle. First when Democrats opposed Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and now with the latest court appointee. Judge Amy Coney Barrett is certainly an example of someone who advocates life in America. Instead of choosing an abortion, ACB, that's what I call her, not to be confused with AOC, Judge Barrett chose to give birth to a Down syndrome child. She has also adopted two children from Haiti. What a stellar example for us all, an American judge who actually values children and life and walks the walk. Mrs. Barrett is motivated by her Catholic faith, and because of that, She came under fire from Senator Dianne Feinstein during her U.S. Court of Appeals confirmation hearing in 2017.
2: The dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues. It's never appropriate for a judge
3: to impose that judge's personal convictions, whether they derive from faith or anywhere else on the law.
0: Ooh, the dogma lives loudly in you. What does that remind you of? The force is strong in you, young Skywalker. We can't possibly have that on the court. (laughs) Folks, we need to pray for this Supreme Court battle and our nation at this crucial time. We sure need a turnaround and a touch from God. Join me and countless other Americans as we pray for our nation. Watch The Return live on CBN News. Tune in Friday, September 25th from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time and Saturday, September 26th on the CBN News Channel, CBNNews.com, and all of our digital platforms. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.